think you you want to recognize that you will not get wealthy quick in real estate. It's a great path to you know achieving a great net worth if you can you know be very specific in your tactics and strategies. Welcome to the Big Picture Blueprint. I'm your host Dan Hebercost, along with Mason McDonald, and we're going to discuss all things land, real estate, and business in general with all kinds of exceptional people. Let's get started. All right, guys, welcome back to the Big Picture Blueprint. I am one of your hosts, Dan Habercost, along with Mason McDonald. Uh, and today we have a fun topic. We're going to talk through some of the things we hear repeated on podcasts and books and interviews nonstop that just aren't true. So, Mason, how are you doing today? Dan, I'm doing great. I think this is going to be a fun one. I think we both grew up listening to these podcasts. I think we can attribute a lot of our you know, action that we took towards real estate to a lot of the podcasts that we heard and the guests that inspired us on it. And uh, now that we're in the business, I think we learned that a lot of it was baloney. Yep. So it'll be fun to, you know, talk about some of these common misconceptions and what we see in the business. And neither of us are self-certain in any of our strategies, but uh, we can give you the real insight from real investors with no BS about these topics. Well, Mason, that was an excellent intro into one of the main ones we wanted to talk about. We're not self-certain. Yet, so often we'll hear that, you know, insert strategy is the best option. Multifamily is the best, commercial, whatever it might be. And that is just not true. Do you want to elaborate on why that's ridiculous to try and establish any one thing is the best? Yeah, I think philosophically for me uh no i'm just kidding i won't go too much into that but i think self-certainty is something that uh is just going to limit you um in any way that you're thinking so with every single investment strategy that there is within real estate and a lot of what is talked about is not actually investing you know like i i flip land that's not an investment strategy i'm a pawn shop for land so i think it really depends on the individual personality of the person and what they're good at I think that, you know, the type of strategy is more, you know, I, I think the best way to say it is this is the best type of strategy for real estate investing for me yes. is the verbiage that needs to happen because, you know, for a wholesaler or a door knocker or something like that, that's an amazing strategy for so many people. And it works well because, you know, there's limited capital involved with it uh, sometimes, which is probably another common misconception we'll jump into. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I don't know, Dan, I think that so many people just want to sell themselves more than anything rather than the actual strategy, which is why they say it's the absolute best. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I think you said it pretty well. And to summarize, you can't say what's best without having a conversation about what somebody's trying to optimize for. <laughs> you know, if, mm -hmm. if I love my job and I'm a doctor and I'm thinking of one of my friends right now, then starting a wholesaling business or a land flipping business certainly is not best. He makes four-ish hundred bucks an hour for him buying consistently nice turnkey rentals depreciating them heavily that's the best strategy for him and his family that's all he wants to do so if someone says that their strategy is the best they're probably trying to sell you something and one thing that drives me nuts is is multifamily is always better than single again what are you optimizing for but forget about that for a moment Everything that's said about multi can be turned on its head. So, well, if I buy a fourplex and I have four different income sources and more hedge against risk of loss of income, well, true. But if you have four tenants, you also have four times the likelihood of a problem with the tenant having messed up on your screening, having you know uh, an eviction or 
damage or something like that happening. So every good statement can be turned on its head to a bad as well. And multifamily is not always better than single, again, without having a conversation about what you're optimizing for. So that's just an example. But mm-hmm. you already started to transition us. Do you want to take us on to another one or any more comments there? I think, no, I, I, I think you're right on. And I, I think with you know, it's, it's once again, you know, multifamily is great for a lot of people, you know, depending on how it works and your time commitments and your capital commitments and everything. But I think capital commitments is something that I want to talk about that I hear. And it's the idea of you can invest in real estate with no money. And that is just not true. You need some money in some capacity to be able to invest in real estate or flip real estate or do deals in real estate. You know, I, I think as the market gets more and more competitive with more, you know, I I don't know what to call it other than individuals or mom and pop shops that are wholesaling or flipping or, you know, doing burr strategies or whatever it is, you hear it all the time of you don't need any money to do it. You can go and walk in your neighborhood and go door to door and, you know, find all this stuff. And, And the thing is, yeah, you might be able to get one or two deals that way. Maybe if you spend hundreds or thousands of hours doing that kind of stuff. But, you know, I think a lot of people, whenever they approach me and they're interested in flipping land and, you know, they, they hear, you know, some of the strategies or the sexy words that are tied to flipping land is, uh, it's a lower barrier to entry. Um, it costs less to do it. But the thing is, you know, I'm spending, you know, in between 10 and $15,000 a month to operate my business and, you cannot get deals if you're not spending your money on marketing. And I think that's a huge thing where it's like, yeah, I don't put my own money into the actual deals I do anymore, but I do put a lot of my money into my marketing budget. And so, yeah, maybe you can partner with someone or do this kind of thing. But usually if you haven't done a deal before, why the hell would I invest with you and put my money with you to do some strategy that I could go to the, you know, Joe Schmo down the door that's doing it. But Dan, I know that's something that we talk about a lot. Uh, have you ever done a real estate deal with no money? No, I've done certainly lower money uh, deals. The first couple uh, rentals I picked up were house hacks. And so there's really a spectrum. And and again, we're hitting on a couple points here, but you said earlier, people misuse the word investing. And that's correct. Actual real estate investing is cash intensive. Even if you can get something 100% financed, which I have, owner financed, uh, gotten owner financed rentals, there's still problems that pop up. You know, at my talk last week at the real estate group, I explained how my first rental, which only took 3.5% down, had a $10,000 expense in the first year. This is a cash intensive venture as far as actual investing. Now, on the other side of the spectrum are the active businesses that you certainly can start with less money. You, know, you can start a land business with less money, but you still need cash. And, and again, I think this is just doing people a disservice and it more has to do with selling courses and videos and podcasts talking about no money down. Uh, because even if you go up and pick up house hack after house hack for 3% down, things are going to come up. You're going to need cash. Things are going to go wrong. This is a cash intensive venture as far as investing. So yeah, that one definitely uh, gets under my skin a little bit when I hear it repeated. Oh yeah. when And, and, and when it rains, it pours. Yes. You know, I feel like it's you know, whenever there's an issue with, you know, one of your rentals, then you're going to get a flat tire on your car and your AC is going to go out and everything happens at the exact same time. And, you know, I feel like, you know, there's no science to support that, but that right there, where if you don't have cash reserves and adequate cash reserves, where 
you know, Dan, correct me if I'm wrong. I think with the majority of your, you know, rentals, you actually don't take any of the money out. You keep that in a pool because you hear, okay, well, you know, you should set aside five, 10, 15% for capital expenditures and maintenance and all this other stuff. And then it happens and it's like, well, okay, well, my CapEx for my $10,000 repair, if I had been only putting 10% back for the past uh, two years, then maybe I would have been able to afford it that way. So I think that's a big one. And I think kind of going into that and talking about, you know, repairs, maintenance and stuff like that is the the burr strategy for me where I'm in the middle of a burr right now. Uh, it's going to be an amazing project. You know, it's a very great long-term investment. It's a commercial building. I've got a partner on it. We got in owner financing once again, you know, 5% interest, five-year term amortized over 30 years. It's in a downtown area with very limited inventory. It's an amazing project, but God bless, is it not for me? I think that, you know, from a financial perspective, from the outside looking in, you can see the burr, which is buy, rehab, rent, refinance, repeat as one of the, you know, you know, best strategies that exists in real estate. And it does, it, it is a great strategy financially, but from a personality standpoint and a stress standpoint where it's just. It, I did not have the systems in place to do it. I do not enjoy doing a rehab. I do not enjoy having to manage contractors. And and I think you have to, once again, you have to match up your personality and your skill set with your investment strategy. Because for me, I took it on because I knew it was a good, it was a good deal and it will be a good deal. You know, it's a 10, 20 year deal for me, but holy smokes, it is not an easy project because it is all of the difficulties and complexities of every real estate strategy smacked into one and it keeps me up at night. Um, so I, I think whenever you hear these strategies and you, you're only going to be hearing the really positive things about, you know, burr flipping houses a lot of times, and you'll hear the horror stories, but I think what you don't hear is the headaches associated with it and the day-to-day operations and how that stress and focus of your time and energy will take away from whatever your potential active business is. And I think that's something you need to be really careful for where every deal is not a good deal for you. It can be a great deal, but if it takes away um, more than it's adding to your portfolio, I think that's something you have to be really careful with. Yeah. So simply put, be careful about strategies that do work, but the the work and stress and, and pain in the butt involved are understated, I think is the succinct summary there. There we go. Thanks. Yeah, no, no, that's fine. Um, the real life examples of Orton. So another one that kills me and is really relevant this week with some of the leads we're getting is that real estate always goes up. And I hear that about land specifically. We got, we did a big mail mailer in North Carolina and there is a section of Bolivia, North Carolina, where the whole neighborhood, there are sales in the single thousands, you know, 1,000, 4,000, 8,000. And these lots were bought well over hundred thousand in the early 2000s. There's one where the guy, oh my gosh, we offered him, I think, two grand. He paid 130 Ooh. Yep. So real estate does not always go up. And and what's funny, Dan, is you're saying that about, you know, in North Carolina, I can think of, you know, a market in Colorado where that happened, several markets in Colorado where that happened. I know you know one in Nevada where that happened and, and it's so common. And I think that is such an important thing to remember is, Yes, real estate in general can be a very safe place to park your money. 
land can be a very safe place to park your money and you can make money on any deal that you find whenever it comes to your doorstep, maybe. And I I think it's whenever you go in and you're making a lot of uh, assumptions about what's going to happen, I think that's going to be really painful whenever your assumptions don't come true. I think I heard it on a Hormozy podcast and I think we talked about it of, you know, change the word expectation to assumption in your, in your dictionary, because I expect most of my real estate to go up in value. I do. And I need to reword that and make it an assumption because there's nothing worse I can imagine than these people that paid 20, 30, a hundred thousand for their land in the nineties and early 2000 and expected it to grow up and blow up and everything. But the problem is you know, what I hear constantly with these markets, and I wonder if it's the same for you, Dan, is that there was a lot of promises made by the initial developers that replatted these subdivisions mm-hmm. that just never came to fruition. You know, I'm thinking of certain areas in Hartzell, Colorado, Park County, Colorado, that a company came in, did a huge subdivide, sold off all these five and 10 acre parcels to people. And, you know, it was going it, to, it's what, an hour from Breckenridge, it's 30 minutes from Buena Vista, and all these beautiful areas. And nothing ever happened. And it is boondock, horrible, yep. you know, it's beautiful land. It's really beautiful land, but it is worth, you know, six, 700 an acre, maybe a thousand an acre on the market. And they were paying well upwards of four to 5,000 per acre back then. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen that. I mean, look up rattlesnake acres in New Mexico. That's probably the worst example I've ever seen. And they got sued for a lot of money or Colorado city, Colorado, or Trump, Nevada, which is now getting built out, but initially people paid a lot and was cheap for a long time. And some of these subdivisions, it, there weren't necessarily malicious intents originally. Some of them just didn't grow like expected. And then some of them were just outright scams where they made it look like it was getting built out and there's schools and hospitals coming in that weren't. But yeah, uh, real estate does not always go up in value. That is incorrect. Well, and, and I, I think that's such an important point that you hammer home with me because, you know, I, I get deals sent to me daily, all the time from all over the country. And I'll be like, Dan, look at this. It's a 12 cap, uh, you know, like duplex for sale in Wisconsin oh. for $109,000 and it'll cash flow this much. And, and I'm like, damn, I have the cash to go just buy that outright. And you say, Mason, stop. <laughs> Why are you telling me to stop, Dan? Yeah, I, I like what I tell it. What about those markets and everything? Um, you know, it makes you say, whoa, 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 that's a red flag there. I am from near Cleveland. And I remember when I was getting into the beautiful part of the country. Yes, beautiful part of the country, I say sarcastically. And so many out of state investors come there and get themselves in trouble because what looks excellent on paper is not reality. And they don't realize that they're buying a, you know, eighty or hundred year old building in a war zone that the pro forma numbers will never come to fruition. And even on the nice sides of town, there are maybe not issues with crime, but you're still dealing with properties from the 1910s to the 1940s or best case 50s in some of these areas. And the degree of maintenance and and capital expenditure, expenditure just goes up dramatically. I still have a duplex in Parma, Ohio. And that was one where right after I bought it, I had a $10,000 expense. That was the 50s. That one's from the 50s. You're dealing with clay pipe and knob and tube wiring and all that fun sort of stuff. So you can build a business out of rentals in the Midwest just like you can anywhere, but you have to buy so much deeper than you realize. 
And a lot of what is talked about in these markets is just not true. And one more thing about that is the property ta taxes are outrageous. My uh, $130,000 duplex, your odds probably worth 180, 190 now, but none, nonetheless, it has 3,800 a year in property taxes, whereas like a half a million dollar house out here in Colorado Springs, I think I pay 1,800 a year. And so that never goes away. You're not paying that down. That only goes up. So age of property and then area are neglected a lot of times when people are buying in the Midwest. 100%. And I, I, I think the way to kind of think about it is, you know, we, we have amazing logistics solutions in the United States now. It's 2023. I mean, you can get material from kind of anywhere and everywhere. And so material costs throughout the country, yeah, there's going to be fluctuations and some variation. Uh, it's labor costs that are going to be, um, you know, there's a lot more fluctuation, but a roof is a roof is a roof is a roof. Yeah. And if a roof, you know, if you need to replace your roof in the Midwest and you compare the cost to replacing your roof in, you know, the West in Colorado Springs or California, the costs are not very different, but the half a million dollar home that it costs maybe, you know, 3% more to replace the roof than the $150,000 duplex in Ohio. That right there is something that you're not necessarily thinking about of, okay, well, you know, you hear about the cash flow markets versus the appreciation market. And it, you know, I, I think that's a good, good way to look at it at a really high level. But I think that you need to think about, okay, well, all of these expenses that are I expect to have to pay eventually, recognize that, hey, if all of these things go wrong, you know, if the refrigerator goes out and the AC goes out and the furnace goes out and um, everything happens in your duplex in Cleveland, Ohio, and the total value of the property is, you know, let's say uh, $200,000 for easy math, but you just had to spend $40,000 on replacing all of this stuff, you know, that's that's a lot of money. That's 20% of the value of the property and like very simple replacements that where if it was a half a million dollar, you know, it, you know, significantly is reduced of, you know, yeah. then it's an 8% commitment. Yeah. So I think that's just something to think about with these different real estate markets. Yeah, absolutely. No, that those are several good points you made there uh, as well, Mason. So I think we, we drove that point home, but you, you mentioned cap rate and we got to talk about mm -hmm. this so many times I've heard, well, the residential side of things is, is valued more based on people's emotions and feelings, but the commercial side of things is based on math. And to a degree, this is true. But the statement that the commercial side of things is based purely on math is ridiculous because ultimately, mm -hmm. what are cap rates? What happens if, let's say, interest rates stay the same, rents stay approximately the same, but something changes the sentiment for investors? What happens? They're going to, the cap rate changes. The cap rate is partially a function or largely a function of market and human psychology. So it is not purely based on math. I'm working on on, on moving more into multifamily. I, I would prefer that for me, but it is not always better and is not only based on math. Human psychology plays a big part in that. Absolutely. And, and for those of y'all that don't know, cap rate is just a multiplier uh, that gives us the value of a property where, you know, if the and it's a formula based on the net operating income. So, you know, revenue minus expenses before debt service, and that's a multiplier. So if it's a five cap and the NOI is $100,000, then the property is worth uh, $2 million, allegedly. Mm -hmm. But it's what determines that cap rate. Mm -hmm. 
is what I think Dan is really, really saying here, where what could be a five camp in Colorado Springs, Colorado, uh, for the exact same property type that you, you envision it versus something that's similar in Cleveland, Ohio, that might be a 12 cap or a 15 cap or something like that. So you see those really attractive cap numbers. And I think that, uh, you know, you forget that it's an arbitrary number that is based exactly what Dan is saying. It's based on psychology and emotion and all sorts of different things because who knows? And I think, um, you know, something to kind of, you know, follow up to that is that all real estate is financeable. And, you know, you can look at a commercial property where this one in Southern Colorado that I'm doing, I, I had a lot of lenders not want to lend to me, regardless of the fact that it's a tourist destination, it's a downtown appreciate theoretically appreciating asset. But since it was in a very rural community with very small population size, banks usually will have their checkboxes and they won't finance on properties that don't meet those checkboxes. So your financing options are going to be super limited uh, based not just on your asset class that you have, but on the actual location of it. You know, banks, it, it's harder to get money right now in 2023 than it was a few years ago. So you have to be really careful assuming once again, making an assumption that, okay, well, I'm going to do a first strategy in small town nowhere. And I know that whenever I do a refinance, that a bank is going to come in and very happily pay off my hard money lender because the hard money lender is happy to do it uh, because they're getting their payment no matter what. And then the bank is not going to be able to finance it. And then you're going to be scrambling. Yep. Yep. And, and land is another great example. It's not impossible, but it is hard to finance land. And there are places now in the country where insurance is hard to come by and without insurance getting financing is pretty much impossible. Uh, so yeah, not all real estate is all the time financeable. That's a, that's a good one. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I think, uh, just thinking about all these different misconceptions that we hear constantly, you know, it makes it sound like, you know, we don't think any real estate investing is a good strategy, but I want to clarify, we think real estate is the, the best and only strategy in the world to make a lot of money. Just kidding. But uh, we, we do think that real estate in the long run is something that is going to be an amazing opportunity to help move us towards retirement. But I think we have to really hit that point home of flipping is not investing. Flipping is a business. So for me, you know, and Dan, you know, flipping land, that is just an active business generator. We're technically dealers of land is kind of how it works, you know, from a tax perspective. But real estate to like actually become wealthy takes a really, really, really long time because you hear about all this stuff and, you know, to achieve, you know, a, whatever your goal is, a one, a five, a 10, a hundred million dollar net worth through real estate, that's going to take a really long time if you're doing it by yourself. Yeah. Um, so I think you, you want to recognize that you will not get rich quick in real estate or you will not get wealthy quick in real estate. Um, it's a great path to, you know, achieving a great net worth if you can, you know, be very specific in your tactics and strategies, but it takes decades uh, to really, um, you know, accumulate enough property to make it make sense. Because when you hear about the people that went from zero to a hundred million dollars in net worth in two or three years through real estate, what ends up happening is, oh, it's fraud. And that's the case um, <laughs> a, a lot of times. Yeah, that or there was 10 years of failure and, and and slowly making progress before that, that was ignored. And then they got really good at something. Uh, but no, I, I see this all the time, hosting that real estate group. So many 
beginners show up and they heard about one of these crazy stories, right? Someone at the far end of the bell curve who did it as quickly as humanly possible. And they want, right, a get rich quick scheme. But the reality is what you just said is spot on. Uh, It takes time to get good at something. It's a business like any other, whether you're in land flipping or new development or flipping homes or whatever. And, you know, most people that look like they are overnight successes are in fact 10 or 20 year overnight successes and, and others don't realize that. And so, you know, shoot, I've, I bought my first property in 2018, but I've been managing other people's businesses for five years before that. And I'm feel like I'm still just getting started. So you got to take the long-term perspective and know that no one strategy is best. It's not a get rich quick scheme. Lots of things are going to go wrong, but if you do it consistently over decades, it can put you in a very good place. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I think uh, that, you know, kind of in line with that, a lot of reasons, you know, we've, we've talked a little about a little bit about appreciation and, you know, cash flow versus appreciation markets and stuff like that. But, you know, one of the most attractive things to me about investing, you know, truly investing in real estate is the idea of the tax benefits associated with it. And I think, um, you know, people will hear something on a podcast and they hear all this jargon of, you know, short-term capital gains and long-term capital gains and tax deferment through 1031 exchanges and stuff like that. And real estate can be an amazing tax benefit. But if you're not operating it correctly, you can get really screwed over because, you know, if you attempt to do a 1031 exchange and you don't really know what you're doing with that and you haven't set, you know, the ball in motion, you know, to acquire a property on the back end of the sale in a timely manner, markets can fluctuate and change immediately. So you can end up getting hit with really hefty tax bills in real estate whenever you thought that you were going to be paying no taxes for the rest of your life. And so, you know, just recognize that while real estate can be a tax haven, you have to be very careful hearing all these different strategies that might not be in, in existence where, if you just started listening to a real estate podcast or something like that, you go back to the beginning of Bigger Pockets and start from the beginning, you know, and whenever they got going, you know, in the the early twenty, you know, teens and everything, and you start hearing about all this bonus depreciation and amazing stuff that was going on, you know, starting in twenty seventeen, twenty twenty three, that stuff is going away. So be careful making an assumption about a strategy that you haven't researched yourself or talked with a professional in the industry and. Even professionals in the industry don't always know what they're doing, um, especially whenever it comes to you know taxes and tax savings and stuff like that. Yeah, no, that that's a great point. I'll leave it at that because I think that was well said. Gosh, I think those are a lot of the major ones. Although wh- one more I, I see here that I think we didn't hit on was just real estate investing being passive. And sure, you know, normal residential rental properties are more passive than a job, but I'll tell you, they are not passive. Things go horribly wrong at the worst times. Things go wrong altogether, like you said earlier, in the storms, especially if geographically your properties are all in the same place. And that's just, it's just not true. There are more passive investments, right? If I'm just the uh, owner of a triple net Walgreens building, okay, that is, that is almost completely passive. There's a small amount of work I need to do there, but most people aren't starting there. They're starting with older properties that need fixed up, that aren't, you know, in the greatest shape. And uh, that is far from passive. And if you're in the less desirable parts of town, that only exacerbates that. 
the more passive properties I have are single family houses in the nice parts, uh, where the tenants have to meet hundred credit scores, which tells you a lot. So that's just another one I wanted to hit on quickly. Oh yeah. Well, and, and I think the thing is real estate investing can be passive, but in order to make it passive, you have to have an extremely high net worth, um, yeah. a significant amount of money to make it that way. Because, you know, you think about it where it's like, okay, well, you know, I'm going to go buy this, you know, single family, small multifamily, multifamily property that's going to have a property manager in place. And so the property manager is going to handle everything. But Dan, how often do you get calls from your property manager? Too often, Mason. Too often. Yeah, Too so. often. Well, and, and that's the exact thing. So it's regardless of if you put a step in between um, yourself and the actual tenants involved in the operations of the business, that person is still going to be coming to you because you are the decision maker. So you know, you can outsource it to a certain point, you know, if you feel comfortable with that. But I think, you know, for most of us that are getting started that aren't worth more than 30 to $50 million, um, you want to be the one that approves like, okay, well, like I, I do want to approve this renovation, you know, that the property manager thinks is worth it and everything. And so you could put a person in between yourself and the property manager if you have, you know, the net worth to, you know, create and start a family office or if you're in ventures are, you know, made through like a financial manager and, you know, quarterly you're getting statements and reports and that kind of thing. But no, real estate investing is not an entirely passive venture. You can put the systems, processes, and people in place to make it nearly, but you're never going to get uh, completely hands off unless you have significant wealth to make that happen. Yeah. And along that whole conversation, you know, talking about high net worth needed to buy truly passive invested investments and set it up that way. My whole thought process about how to invest after having done this for years has totally changed. The whole idea of trying to build a portfolio before you have money is, is again, th this is my opinion, and some people have done it contrary, but I'm going to share it. In my mind, it's ridiculous. Buying a house hack or two is great because you can eliminate your mortgage expense, potentially some of your living expense. Okay, that's worth doing. But in hindsight, I would have started an active business sooner that's scalable to an extreme degree, focused on that from day one and just bought nice turnkey rentals or new construction rentals once uh, or as I scaled that business. The idea of trying to invest without money, again, again, beyond a house hack or two, because that can improve your financial situation, is just ridiculous. And again, my opinion, there are people who have done it differently, but most of the time, real estate is what you do as far as investing. Once you're wealthy, to save on taxes, to shelter your money, help it uh, uh, go up along or appreciate appreciate along with inflation, it's less or so something you should be doing when you don't have money. Go figure out how to make money. Yep. I, I think, Dan, you know, we, we call it the big picture blueprint because that's what we want to outline. We want to simplify this for everyone. And I know we talked through a lot of common misconceptions and with those misconceptions, a lot of different strategies within real estate. And I think you know, my, my goal to kind of leave everyone with is to summarize what Dan said and boil it down from what uh, both our blueprints kind of are, which is create an active business or have a really high earning job um, to generate large amounts of revenue. And that revenue may or may not be advantageous from a tax perspective. So you take that revenue and then you put it into easy mm -hmm. real estate opportunities. And the easy real estate opportunities that we're talking about, you know, it's the Walgreens that's on a 15 year triple net lease, uh, which means they're paying property taxes, uh, property management and maintenance. And, you know, uh, that has a three 
3% annual increase and you don't really have to worry about things with it. And there's all the depreciation benefits. And then you have the opportunity once you have the high income generating activity that you can outsource, uh, then you can start new ventures of, you know, maybe it's new builds, new constructions, whatever it is along your skill set. So make a lot of money, put it into easy real estate as our blueprint. That's what works for us. That's what we enjoy um, because we don't like headaches and having to overextend ourselves. You know, the reason both of us got into real estate and real estate investing and doing all this stuff is because we hate working for people and working in corporate America. And, uh, you know, this strategy works for us, but, you know, I, I think it's a, it's a good framework to think about creating long-term sustainable, uh, income and, uh, generational, generational wealth. Well said Mason, that's a mic drop moment. So I'll leave it at that. Uh, thanks for joining me. I hope this was useful guys till next time. And that's it for today's episode of The Big Picture Blueprint. If you found it helpful, please share it with your friends or anyone you think that it could benefit. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a rating, and we'll see you in the next episode.